Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 87. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxford Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Kurt Christensen. Kurt is an AP Biology and pre-AP Biology teacher at Hewitt Trustville High School in Trustville, Alabama. Kurt has been teaching biology and environmental science for over 20 years in both private and public schools. He has also worked with very diverse uh, students with he has also worked with students with very diverse learning needs, including both uh, elementary students in a progressive private school and rural county schools in Alabama. Outside the classroom, Kurt has worked as an educational consultant for A-plus College Ready and has led professional development sessions at both state and national conferences. Welcome, Kurt. Hey, Aaron. Glad to be here. Yeah, nice to get together with you over our uh, over our winter break here. Uh, let me be one of the first people to say Happy New Year. And Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. Yeah, this is going to come out later, so definitely have some time between when this comes out and when this episode airs. So. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, this will come out and be two weeks, three weeks back into school <laughs> in January. So uh, don't remind me. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, it's been interesting. I've been reading a lot of things about people, you know, talking about recharging over the break. Um, have you felt like you've had a little downtime to recharge over this January break? No, um, mainly, <laughs> <laughs> mainly because I'm one of those guys that just can't stop, you know, in terms of whether, uh, you know, it's reading about stuff, listening, trying to catch up on podcasts or on articles and riding my bike, you know, preparing for Christmas dinner and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I just don't seem to have much free time. And my wife had surgery at Thanksgiving, shoulder surgery, and uh, it's basically left her somewhat helpless, probably for at least a couple more weeks. And so, you know, when Christmas, you know, I have to do all the wrapping. And I learned how to wrap in a butcher shop. So that's, that's the way my wrapping goes. <laughs> One piece of masking tape. On exactly. That's all I need. <laughs> well, yeah, you are definitely one of the group that is in the like sort of the one speed kind of guys, or maybe two speeds, the on off uh, kind yeah, of exactly kind of people. But uh, but yeah, well, I mean, still, it's it's been good to have some some time with family and and that sort of stuff. I I, I know personally that's been for me a little bit more. Um, I've done a lot more reading. You know, you mentioned reading. I've done a lot more reading over the last few days than I can normally do in a in a regular school year day. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great catching up with uh, some of my kids because I don't get to see them very often. And because, uh, um, you know, one one's in medical school, another one's on an oil rig platform where he does environmental consulting. But uh, it's good to see them. Um, and I love to catch up on my reading. I wish I could say I could read books. I just can't. Um, I can I can get through a couple of chapters and then, you know, I, I lose interest. And it's very difficult. So I'm more of a short article type guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's funny. I, one of my first episodes, I think it was episode two when I talked to uh, Antonio Gamboa and I remember having that same conversation with him. He does not have the patience to read books. Like he's like, Nope, just give me a, give me an article. I can read an article, but I don't want to have to come back, you know, three, four days later to try to finish it. Just yeah, I want to be able to yeah. finish it all sort of at once. So. Or, you know, books that have, you know, self-contained chapters. I love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So something like uh, Sean Carroll's "The The Story of Life" might yes, be that kind of exactly. book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've read that several times in preparation for using uh, his, some of his stories in my classroom and things like that. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, thanks for joining me. And um, again, we could just, I think from our background, this is going to be interesting for me because we've had like a million little conversations, like articles, if you will. And this is going to be the long form. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so like, I'm going to have to like, in my mind, I have the sort of timeline of your career a little bit, but now I'm going to, I got to, to mine it a little bit more when I got to do my, my show prep for this. So uh, it was good to, it was good to dive in and go, oh yeah, that's where that story comes from. And yeah. oh, that's the school he was talking about there. So um, I'm, I'm glad to share that with the, with the, the general public so excellent looking forward to that all right so let's get into that first question um i like to ask everybody which is like how did you become a science teacher uh what did you do that led you into the classroom wow it's completely unintentional um <laughs> to put that out right out right out there uh, i grew up in a family where my um father was pretty conservative and this is back in the 60s and 70s yeah i'm an old guy and um <laughs> You know, he was one of those conservatives that really did not like teachers or what they did. And so it was something that was not encouraged at all to go into education, which is funny because of his two out of his three children, both ended up in education. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, um, it was like I said, it was quite unintentional. I was a wildlife biologist uh, from um, about, well, actually, since I was in high school, I've always been interested in biology. but. while I was at school in Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, uh, it's a very small school and you got to interact directly with the professors and uh, there was no like large classes at all. And uh, it was a very field oriented school. And uh, like my first summer, I ended up at Malheur Field Station out in the Eastern Oregon, uh, where I just fell in love with ornithology and birds and things of that nature. And that led me to some field work with the Nature Conservancy out in a place called Sycan Marsh, out in East, also out in eastern Oregon. And then I ended up in Alaska one summer doing work on walruses and bears and things like that. And uh, finally finished up school at Lewis and Clark in 1985. Had a little one-year hiatus there where I ended up doing some field work um, with the Nature Conservancy. So it took me an extra year to get through college. But when I finished school, I ended up, again, working with the Conservancy for uh, on and off field type jobs. And I did some um, uh, touring with the Smithsonian Institution, leading uh, natural history tours out in the Mojave Desert. I ended up going to Papua New Guinea, where I spent over a year working on birds of paradise. And this was back in the um, mid 80s and those birds had not even been filmed. Of course, nowadays, we, nowadays you can turn on any video and you see the a uh, great bird, the blue bird of paradise and rifle birds and things like that. And a Ragiana bird of paradise doing all sorts of cool dances. Well, I was there watching this stuff happen and people hadn't seen it before. And it was just amazing because we were in these little tiny blinds and, you know, watching this work, watching these birds, these incredible dances, it was just unbelievable. And I was working with a professor from University of Chicago now, uh, Steve Pruitt-Jones. And that was over about a year's worth of work and came back um, from that and decided I really wanted to go to grad school and um, applied to a bunch of different schools, got into all of them and uh, ended up vit- went to go visit. I was at UC um, Davis and then I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison and then up to Fort Collins. And when I was at Madison, I ran into a professor there, uh, uh, Dr. Timothy Mormond 
who was really interested in seed dispersal, but he said, ah, I got too many students. Um, so I ended up going out in the hallway, talking to one of his students. Meanwhile, Dr. Mormon was actually listening to what I was saying to the student. All of a sudden, after I told him some of my experience and things, working with uh, radio tracking birds of paradise and um, trying and banding sandhill cranes and black terns and all sorts of other birds, all of a sudden he comes running out and he goes, you want to go to Africa? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I got this project I'm starting up in Rwanda on, um, uh, on the effects of... Uh, or the interaction between um, birds and primates and tropical forest regeneration. And I said, sure, <laughs> without really thinking much about it. and Not knowing uh, much about what was going on in Rwanda at the time. Yeah, well, I at imagine. the time, it was a very peaceful place. And this was in the late 80s. And so I ended up in Rwanda in 1989, um, working in a place called the Nyungwe Forest which was um, not a national park at all. It was not a national forest or anything. And it was actually being heavily um, mined um, by uh, artisanal, I guess that's what you would call them, artisanal gold miners. You know, basically these guys that were coming in and with just shovels and picks and basically devastating the interior part of the forest um, in search of basically 25 to 50 cents a day is what they were making. Um, so I ended up uh, doing all my spent, uh, I was there from 89 to 96, you know, both before, during and after the Rwandan genocide, which kind of derailed my um, program a little bit. I ended up switching into a PhD program, but after the genocide, I just uh, left with my master's. And after about 96, um, trying to get restart the project we were working on and things of that nature, um, I kind of a long story here, but um, I'd also met a woman over there. I had two children with her. Uh, she was an American researcher uh, doing HIV research there. And so we had two kids. And um, after the genocide, uh, she got recruited um, by the University of Alabama, Birmingham to do HIV stuff. Well, unfortunately, at that point, um, we had decided to go our separate ways. And um, But I still wanted me to be near my my children. So I came to Birmingham, Alabama, trained as a tropical ecologist with most of my background working with birds. And then sometimes, you know, these weird things where I was working with walruses up in Alaska, you know, and, and bears and things. But um, I, this was 96, I got to Birmingham. And um, when I first got here, I was had some symptoms from an autoimmune disorder called what well, used to be called Ryder's syndrome. Now, because Dr. Ryder, I think, was a Nazi scientist, they changed it to reactive arthritis. And I basically couldn't walk when I first got here. And wow. so I'm sitting here, what the heck am I going to do? And I tried looking around uh, at some of the very few organizations that were in Birmingham, Alabama in 1996, and there were not very many conservation organizations here. Um, our local, uh, the Alabama Department of Environmental Management was basically a rubber stamp for industry to do whatever they wanted to do. Um, so that didn't really interest me that much. And basically, long and short, um, couldn't really find any work here and decided to, well, heck, since I can't really move around that much at this point, I'm just going to go see what I can do at school. So I went to uh, the University of Alabama, enrolled in a what was called a fifth year program, where if you already had a BS in uh, or MS, like which is what I had at the time, in science, you could do a one year program and end up with your science teaching and 
secondary education program or uh, certificate and along with a teaching certificate license. And so I, I did that, not really knowing what I was going to do, <laughs> and um, actually did my student teaching at um, the school where a mutual friend of ours, Ryan Reardon, is currently the teacher now, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't the teacher then, then at that point. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, I did that and um, was at a party sometime in that, that particular spring, hadn't really started looking for work yet. Somebody had mentioned that, oh, there's this private school that needs a biology teacher. You ought to go up there and talk to them. So I went up and it's called the Altamont School, a well-known private school here in Alabama. Went up there and talked to the headmaster. And he basically hired me on the spot. And that was in 1997. And it was in the spring. So I started teaching at that school in the fall of 97, the day after I got married. <laughs> to my current uh, wife over the last uh, 20, I don't know how many years, 23 years now, 22 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was, it was quite an introduction because my teaching background was pretty much minimal at that point. I did a little stuff in, in graduate school. You know, I ran an ornithology lab and things and took kids on field trips. And I worked with graduate students in Rwanda. And, um, and I've done some uh, informal education with the Smithsonian Institution, uh, things like that. But um, in the classroom, it was it was a shock because all of a sudden I was in this private school. It was, a, it was a five through twelve. I was teaching sixth grade science, ninth grade science, AP biology, and AP environmental science. <laughs> Having never seen taught any of those subjects at all, being a background, my background was in ecology, and all of a sudden there's all this molecular stuff that I'm looking at. I never even took genetics, you know, in college because I didn't focus on that. I did animal physiology and you know comparative anatomy. I did that kind of stuff, but genetics, I was just like clueless on. <laughs> well, I like I like the idea that you're like there's all this molecular stuff, and I was teaching in 1997. There was no molecular stuff in 1997, like <laughs> compared to what we do now no no you know? no yeah yeah i know but for me <laughs> which didn't have i didn't have any background you know yeah. and i was the island you know there was no other biology teachers in the school it was me <laughs> yeah. and uh, and you know really didn't have internet at that point there was but mm -hmm. you know of course the resources were uh, pitiful compared to what you have today and so i'm sitting there trying to teach myself how to you know, all, reading through Campbell's, you know, a, a step ahead of my students. And I almost got divorced after that first year. My wife was like, where are you? <laughs> and I'm sitting yeah. there trying to learn this material that I did not know, you know. And, of course, I, we didn't, I didn't have a projection system, didn't have computers. I'm doing, I have hand, all my notes are handwritten. <laughs> yeah. And you're probably doing notes at that time, like six, seven days, you know, six yeah. days and then a quiz or six days. Yeah, exactly, time. exactly. It was, you know, your standard... As much, and that was before, of course, any of the, the rewrites of the AP biology curriculum where everything was, you know, so nitpicky and, you know, fat, you know, knowing these, knowing these little facts and not really knowing how to integrate stuff, but, you yeah. know, knowing these specific details, which seemed to be the important thing. Yeah. So it was crazy. Well, <laughs> well, I imagine though that, so I, I, I can, I can view a few different things in the way you're telling the story. It sounds like, you know, you dove in and sort of, uh, figured out like what, what it was you were supposed to be telling your kids, uh, you know, like the transmission of content, but knowing you a little bit since then, um, and even though it's been a long time, I imagine that you can bring your extensive fieldwork background 
into the classroom now? So how does how do those stories that you have from your early days out as a field biologist sort of uh, inform work that you do today with your students or over the last you know decade or so um, as you've been working with students in both uh, biology and environmental science? Well, at a, it brings reality to the situation, so to speak. The kids, you know, it, or another way to think of it is like street cred. Um, you know, they know that I've been all over these places, that I've done all this work, and that um, not not degrading or you know knocking anybody who's just gone through you know an education program and then into uh, teaching. But it brings a little bit more real world experience and, like I said, street cred to to the classroom, and the kids just love hearing, uh, you know, some of the stories and, you know, especially because of the diversity of places I've been lucky enough to have worked. And um, like um, early in the year when you're doing your energetics, which is not one of my, actually, I kind of like energetics now, but originally it was not one of my favorite topics. Well, I start off um, with a picture on the board um, of one, a picture I took of a large um, mountain gorilla um, eating some uh, wild celery with a little baby, um, probably about a year and a half old, a, a toddler, basically, uh, also looking direct, directly at the camera and with a big chunk of celery in its mouth. And I, you know, talk to the kids and I'm just, I post that question up there and I say, how does an animal that big survive on celery? You know, that's sort of my intro to the whole energetics uh, unit. And then, I, you know, the next picture I show is of one of these gorillas sitting down and they have the most massive Buddha belly that you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm saying it's a huge fermentation chamber right there. You know, and the amount of uh, low quality food that these guys are bringing in, but because they can take so much of it in and with the combination of the gut microbiome that they're using, extract those nutrients out of there. It's just a, a fun way to bring some of that, um, that experience in uh, to the classroom. And so I'm always trying to bring those types of stories. And, you know, nowadays I can show videos of, like, like I said, with some of the birds of paradise and things and, um, you know, explain sort of the background behind it. And, you know, one of my favorite stories uh, I like to tell is I, I like to call, you know, I was an ornithologist, still am. I love to watch birds, but I have a bird list of birds I've seen while sitting on the uh how do i say this polite on the outdoor toilets that we had in our uh, in our um field camps and things of that nature and one of my best sightings ever is that we used to sit on the we had this open air toilet in um in uh in uh, um papua new guinea overlooking this one stretch of forest and right in front of the open air toilet probably about 30 yards away was a single branch that came out and there was this brown sickle bell, which is this uh, very large bird of paradise. It's very plain looking, but it's got this incredible song. And it would display on that branch every morning. <laughs> so just a, a great little story to bring in with, again, with, with the kids. Yeah. They, they're like, wait a minute. Well, can you go back out? Uh, <laughs> I know. They're always kind of looking at me like, is this guy telling the truth? Is this, is this real? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, but I mean, it's, it is a relevant field experience that, that you had. So, I mean, I guess the, that sort of naturally leads into that. The next question um, I was going to say, like one of the things as I was going through, I found your, your sort of personal philosophy statement that's posted up on your school website, which I thought was pretty cool that you have like a biography that's up there. Um, you know, I look up a lot of different teachers and I always mm-hmm. find it interesting how different schools, you know, either frame or allow, you know, teachers to shape their own story. So it was yeah. fun to fun to read, uh, read about you from your perspective in there. But one of the quotes was that uh, your expertise is in delivering difficult content uh, to an oftentimes reluctant audience um, <laughs> in the way that you you describe yourself. I, I'm curious, like, what does it look like to have a reluctant audience? And maybe that's not as relevant for you today, but, um, you know, how how is it that you find that this is something that you are particularly good at or have been particularly good at throughout your career? Well, you know, um, I think it's all about making it relevant and you, you know, that's, I hate to say it sounds kind of cliche, you know, make it relevant to the kids' lives and things of that nature. But, um, that's what we have to do as teachers. And, you know, my teaching style has evolved so much over the last 22 years from, you know, the sage on a stage to the guide on the side, so to speak, but um, even more so over the last two years. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, interacting with uh, you and many other teachers at the NABT or at the, at the Read, which it, I would suggest to all of your listeners, hopefully there's a lot of them, that they, <laughs> things that they should do is go to the NABT meetings and uh, do a, at least one read if you can, AP read. Um, because, you know, you just get so much information. But anyways, in, I try to make it relevant. And one of the best things, um, and this will apply to all your listeners, that I've found for making stuff relevant is my own kids. I listen mm-hmm. to what they say. I listen to the, you know, their music. I look at their memes that they're doing, whether they're my students or my own kids and things of that nature, and bring that back to them. And like the other day, uh I was given my, my midterm uh, test. I basically, I don't really have a midterm. I just, it was my fifth unit, which was, um, uh, what the heck was my fifth unit on? (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell we're, we're 10 days into break? It's like, it's, it's a, oh, it was all on, uh, um, uh, DNA structure and things like that and replication and whatnot. But, uh, the, on my cover sheet, I had, um, you know, picture of Yoda, you know, of course, this famous quote, do not, do not try, do, but yeah. below, right below him was baby Yoda, baby Yoda saying, boomer, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just, you know, I mean, that's how we have to stay relevant. You know, I'm 57 years old going on 58 and um, it's hard. That's funny. I thought you were 57 year old, 57 years old going on 17. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But I mean, just trying to, you know, otherwise the kids will look at you and they're just like, okay. <laughs> you know. And so we, I think as teachers really have to kind of get down on their level a lot of times and we have to embrace their sense of humor and <laughs> all their quirks, which I love, you know, and that's, that's what keeps me teaching is I just, I just love being with the kids. Yeah. I, I was actually talking to somebody just the other day over break and saying to them that I, I found that I'm getting more and more frustrated by, like the the you know kids today commentary that some people embrace that like 
you know, they complain about the kids and how the kids live in this world that exists today. Oh, and know. I'm like, but well, so do we like, <laughs> you know, know. It's, you it's, know, it's, it's 2020. Like it, you know, there, the world is, exists as yeah. it is like it's, cell phones exist. The internet exists, social media exists. And it might have been nice for you. It might've been nicer for you individually as a teacher when this was not the world that we lived in, but this is the world that we live in. And these are, this is the world that we're teaching these kids in. So oh, I, know, I know you have to teach them in the world that exists, not the world that you wish it was. Exactly. Um, exactly. So. And you know, all these teachers, you know, I do have some restrictions in my classroom with cell phones. I have for my ninth graders, I have a little shoe caddies, you know, I make them put them <laughs> in there, but um, just because it's, it's such a distraction, but I let my kids use their cell phones in a lot of the projects that we do in the class too. I just, you know, I, it's, it's, it is a distraction, but we have to learn how to use it and, um, you know, leverage it for, for teaching. And like, um, yeah, it's the, the change in both the student population and in the teacher population over the last 22 years is it's, it's amazing. Well, and I will I will point out that if you go to a faculty meeting, do you look around and notice um, they're all sitting on their <laughs> cell phones? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like some of the same teachers who will complain endlessly about you know their their students are also the first ones who, in a faculty meeting, might be taking out their cell phone exactly, exactly. And, and looking stuff up. So, I, I you know, to me, there is a a responsibility personally I have about you know. I feel like it's almost more of my job to talk about like how to appropriately use a cell phone to look something up, to communicate. Hey, take a minute. Uh, we're working on this group project. Um, talk it out, figure out what your best way to communicate. You guys want to, do you guys want a, a group, you know, doc that you want to set up? Do you want to have a group chat? Do you, how, take a few minutes here. We're last two, three minutes of class. I've just assigned this project. It's a group project. Take a few minutes and figure out the best way as a group to collaborate and communicate, set up some deadlines for when these things are going to happen, you know, like I talk to them about utilizing mm -hmm. their technology in a way that will help them be productive. Um, and, you know, and that's something we all have to do. And I do do that with my students. I, I'm always encouraging, hey, you got to form study groups. That's what's going to get you through, especially in my AP biology class. I said, you know, one of the first things I tell them at the beginning of the year is we're all in this together. You know, mm. I want you to do well because how you do reflects on me also. And I want you, you know, I don't care if you pass the exam. I do care if you pass the exam. But, <laughs> you yeah. know, my main goal is, is that you learn something in my classroom that might spark a note or, you know, spark a thought in, in the near future. Like, hey, I really, maybe I should, I want to study this a little bit more. And I've had so many students, I'm sure you have too, which really didn't do well in my class. But, you know, three or four or five years later, all of a sudden they're leading a conservation organization or they're in med school or they're, you know, they're doing something else in science or environmental related. And mm -hmm. we at, as teachers, you know, we're seeing these kids for a brief snapshot. And, you know, some we can might, might be able to immediately say, oh, man, this kid's going to go really far. And other ones were like, oh, my God, <laughs> this person's lucky to graduate, you know, from a, a school in Alabama. <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> Blow and behold, we just we just can't, you know, we're not the persons who are going to make wait and wave that magic wand and predict what these kids are going to be doing because they just they're developing so fast. Yeah, and they are. It is a snapshot of where they are. And I, I think for me, one of the biggest things that I struggle with is I think that um, I, I, I think that much of the structure 
that has led students up before they've gotten to me and that will carry them after they leave me is very much in a fixed mindset. Yes. Kids think that, oh, I did well in science before, so I am good at science. I did poorly in science before, so I am bad at science. They walk in the door with this 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 idea about who they are as a person, yes, as a fixed entity, and not that they're just on this journey and they've taken this class so they can hopefully learn a little bit, um, and that you know we don't know what they're going to be ten years from now. Nobody knows what that's going to be, but hopefully you're right. There'll be a learner that will take some skills with them as they walk out the door. Yeah, and that's the only thing we can do is we can you know we can teach kids how to learn, and that's what I love about AP Biology. Now. That's what I love about the changes that are being made in in the AP curriculum and all that because we're taking away that hey, you need to know these facts. Well, you need to know facts, but you don't need to know all these details. But how do this? De- how does this? particular set of ideas relate to this other one that's in a very different, you know, this micro relate to this, relate to this macro system. And, you know, that's just been the biggest change that I've seen over the years. And um, it's, I think it's going to really serve our students well, if we can get them to make those connections. And it's it's not, I struggle with it at times, you know, it's, yeah, (laughs) as we all do. (laughs) Yeah. I'm very much there with you. I, um, yeah, and I, I, for me, the, the I keep coming back to the questions that my kids struggle the most at, on are never the ones where having content information is the thing that they're really struggling with. It's the interpretation of a background reading. It's the uh, deciding an what's the ethical question. It's the like mm-hmm. it, it's much more of the translational skills that traditionally are are holes in my curriculum. Um, presenting content and having students learn content is something I've always done very well, but the the larger implications and those translational skills that they'll be applying to any field that they walk into are the things that we have to get better at. And lo and behold, the more I roll those out for my students sort of in a formative way, the more I find, oh, that's a gap in our understanding. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited about the next few years and, and learning how to do a better job at that myself. Yeah, same here. And I wish... We as a school, it sounds like you're, you're, you know, from what I've talked with you, um, your department is pretty uh, integrated, meaning that you, you, you get to talk with your other people in your department. And <laughs> mine is not quite that way. And, yeah. and interdepartmental stuff is non-existent. Yeah. Well, interdepartmental stuff in our schools just structurally is almost impossible. Uh, within our department, we're a big school. So, you know, we're 2,000 yeah. students and, you know, there's... Gosh, I don't know how many, 10, 10 different people who teach biology uh, wow. <laughs> and something like that. So, you know, lots of little pieces. And within subject areas like biology teachers talking to biology teachers, the way our curricular expectations are set up is you pretty much have to talk to the other biology teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to learn to work together. You have to learn to collaborate. And so that's definitely there. Um also, sort of from the way our building is designed, there are more opportunities to have cross-curricular discussions with people who teach in the sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wish we had a better structure to expand those conversations. I believe a lot of those conversations we have are, um, I don't want to call them superficial, but I feel like they're, they're conversation starters that we don't have like an infrastructure set up so that we could really maintain longer conversations about things. So I have a very superficial understanding about how 
earth science and chemistry and physics work in my school. And I have a better, much better understanding of that than people who are not in my department. Yes. But uh, the the conversations with other colleagues is almost exclusively the deep conversation all about biology. And that's that's partly because of the expectations my department has set up and good leadership, um, both present and past leadership within our department to say, yeah, you have to work together. Um, yeah. That's kind of an expectation. Yeah, the only so. time I've ever really experienced a true sort of like collaboration and working with different departments is when I first started teaching at this small uh, five through 12 school with, you know, 350 students and mm. all the teachers ate at the same time in the lunchroom because the lunchroom food was awesome. You know, we had this, <laughs> we had these great ladies in there cooking up this incredible Southern style food. I put on like 15 pounds my first year of teaching there. <laughs> You know, where, you know, of course you had to have some fat back in the green beans, and things like that. but anyways, um, we had these incredible in-depth discussions over lunch all the time and from all these different departments and it was fantastic, you know, and I just wish that could be replicated on a larger scale in these bigger schools. I'm at a seven, a school, which is we're set 1600, 1650 students ourselves. And, you know, I only, inter I only work closely with, uh, the, other biology teacher who teaches, uh, we call it not, uh, we don't call it pre-AP bio anymore. We call it advanced bio, uh, advanced biology, mm -hmm. um, because of the whole pre-AP curriculum that's out there now. So we can't, unless we adopt that curriculum, we can't call it that course anymore. Sure. But anyways, um, it, it, you know, so I'm that experience early on, that's what education was to me. It was just, it was, it was the epitome of what good education should be in terms of being able to talk uh, with a variety of other faculty members, you know, devise some, we devised a couple of uh, uh, units uh, with, between English and, and biology. Um, uh, one was, we were looking at uh, kind of the early history of DNA structure. I was dealing all the science part and they were looking at the um, societal, what type of novels were being written science fiction books and things like that. it was pretty cool you know um but just ever since then uh after you know, just have not had a chance to do that <laughs> at any place else yeah i think that that's yeah i wonder i wonder if that's one of those things that we're not spending time on as a group of teachers that maybe we we need to think about i think the my headspace and particularly you know having talked to uh, Ron Michelotti, who has a job where he, like, sort of he's in charge a lot of of professional development in his building, and and listening to sort of the professional culture of his building and how it's sort of baked into the culture of the building. I wonder if that's something that we should be as teachers really being fo more focused on. Like, what is the professional culture of your building and the professional culture of the adults in that building and how they interact? Um, is that something that you know, is something that's going to be part of the sea change moving forward in teaching because, you know, I do feel like there's a lot of people who teach in much tougher situations than I certainly do. Oh, heck uh, yeah. And it's not, you know, it's just not sustainable. Like no. it's, it doesn't, and that's the thing about the teaching career right now. It does not feel like a very sustainable setup um, for people to drop in. Like, you know, me, I'm, I'll be teaching for another 10 years and, you know, I'll have more than 35 years in and I'll retire and it'll be fine. But do I see a lot of the people coming in now at the beginning of a career that's going to arc 35 years in a school? Um, it feels like that's something that's not happening as often as what I saw from where I was coming in. There were people leaving the career that had been teaching for 35 years. And I wonder how 
if we're, we're now at a changeover where that's just going to be a rarity now? I think we're on the changeover because mainly the, the culture today that or the, the profession, it, it's, I don't see how young people coming in do it. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're incredibly energetic. Um, I guess that's the only thing that kind of keeps them going. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of getting, I don't want to say I'm getting burned out, but um, I could see doing this for another 10 years or so myself, but um, it's the constant need to update yourself, mm-hmm. it, which just after a while, it starts to get tiring. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I love the science and stuff and I love learning about new ways to present it, but uh, there's almost too many choices. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of reminds me like when I used to work overseas and I would come back to the United States and, you know, I've been overseas for two or three years or something like that, you know, living in a, in a, you know, 10 meter square tent and eating <laughs> cabbage and black and beans, you know, for 365 <laughs> out of the year. And all of a sudden walking into a Walmart and just being overwhelmed by, mm. I was so overwhelmed by choice that I didn't make any, <laughs> you know, and it would just walk out. And I sometimes feel that way in education, especially with, you know, the amount of resources, which resources to use and you know, and thank God for HHMI in terms of being able to put super high quality resources together within a, a single place. Yeah. You know, where we can all access that stuff for free, you know, um, because otherwise, you know, you're just, you're, you're chasing down leads and, you know, apps and trying to learn how to use this. How can I integrate that? And, Te- you know, the tech department wants you to do this and admin saying, oh, you got to use more of this stuff. And you're just like, wow. <laughs> and two years later, they, oh, no, that didn't work. We're going to do something different. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also it, the the time expected to put in there, it's it's your time. Like, uh-huh. you know, the the I don't know about you, but the the caliber and quality and sustainability of the professional development efforts that are put in by the school. um feel antiquated yes like you like we we they still run pd basically mm. the way they ran it when i started teaching in this district which is we have like a full day professional development day in november we have another full professional day sometime usually in march and we have a couple of other half days and like that's your professional development you come in yep. now two days before the school year starts one to be talked at and then one to work with your colleagues um <laughs> but yep. like that's it's just not a, it, we do not have like part of our jobs being a baked in like professional culture. And yeah. I think that that is a, you know, we talk about like, what is the world that we exist today? You know, it's, you don't walk in now and get a textbook on day one and teach that textbook. Like that's what it was 25 yep. years ago. Like when you exactly. walked in in, in the nineties, they gave you a textbook. If you were really lucky, they gave you a teacher's copy of that textbook um, (laughs) that had all the answers in it. But other than that, like that, that was your curriculum. That was what you needed to teach. And realistically, nobody teaches like that anymore. I mean, the number of people I know who don't even barely even teach out of a textbook at all is is pretty high. Yeah. I know. I had my students out. What do we, I think, I think we have an eighth edition Campbell's, which is like 12 years old now. Mm Mm-hmm. And I hand one of those out beginning for usually within the first week to my students. I'm saying, the only thing you're going to use this for are the diagrams. (laughs) I want you to flip through it. If you want to read a little deeper into something, that's up to you. Um, But they have it as a somewhat of at least a reliable resource. 
but I don't require them to do anything with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I find that, and I, I think I, we're using the ninth edition. <laughs> so yeah. we're like one, one past where you're working, but realistically I, I use it as a, you know, it's more of a, it's more of like an encyclopedia. Exactly. Um, I give it as a choice uh, for homework. So mm-hmm. I give a few different options for homework and the textbook is one of those options to, to take notes out of sections out of the textbook. And I do think that the best thing about them is their descriptions of like experiments and how yes. those are lined up. And as you said, sort of the diagrams. And so if you think about something like uh, the Hershey and Chase experiment, for example, um, I think their graphical description and sort of their like the what ifs quantum questions that go around with their description of that experiment are an outstanding way for students to learn and prepare for questions that would be like an AP style question exactly. um, and will exercise the science practices that they need to use. But you're right in terms of the the deep dive on vocabulary and that other stuff, it's it, it's not it's not necessarily the tool that they would go to. Um, as, as best as they, they might have in the past. You know, when you were mentioning the, you know, looking at what your kids do, um, I think that my children, the reason that I went to the flipped classroom is because of my kids. I, you know, I have a, a son who's, you know, now a junior in high school, but, you know, five years ago, what was he on? He was on YouTube all the time. Yeah. Oh, I need to learn this, this. He wanted to learn something. He wanted to learn a magic trick or he wanted to learn how to get past a level in a video game or he wanted to do that. What was he doing? He would go right to YouTube. Yeah. And it was like, that was how he was picking up all his information. And it was like, well, you know, my kids are at the time were, you know, a couple years younger than the students I had in my classroom. And so that meant that the generation who was coming in were all like him, you know, yep. at the time he was in middle school and that's how he, he was learning and that's how his friends would learn things. And, and so why not, you know, bring them out into Muhammad, so to speak, like yeah. you know, bring it, bring it to them. So well, I, don't, I don't know about you, but that's how I learn everything too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got, I need to go change, you know, put a new radiator in my car. I just Google it and there we go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely in the toolbox. It's one of those things I definitely yeah. used. Uh, so, all right. Well, uh, the last sort of, sort of broad topic that we've had, and I know that we've had like tangential conversations about this over time. Um, but one of the things I had noticed is that you had run a PD for fellow teachers, um, in Alabama that was looking at evolution. And I know you love evolution. You love to mm-hmm. talk about evolution and teach evolution. Um, you mentioned it a few times already there. Uh, but teaching evolution, it can be challenging. And particularly in some parts of the country, it's more challenging than others. Um, it's not so hard for me uh, in the western suburbs of Boston uh, to teach evolution. But you know, how do you help your colleagues um, you know, teach evolution in, in challenging settings? Well, the, the, the hardest part for me uh, is I'm not from Alabama. I was born and raised in upstate New York, went to school out in Oregon, and, and then later graduate school in Madison and, uh, you know, one of the cosmic centers of the universe. And <laughs> there, you know, so my background, I wasn't brought up very religious. I grew up as a Lutheran, and, you know, my mom tried to get me to go through confirmation, and I never, you know, I just like, nah. She goes, well, you won't be able to get married in a church. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> and I did. So so I was never a religious person. And all of a sudden, coming down to Alabama um, in 96 and then starting teaching in 97, and I remember one of my students saying something, well, you can't really give us homework on for Wednesday night. And I'm like, why not? And he goes, that's church night. And I'm like, 
church night. It's Wednesday. Don't you go to church on Sunday? And uh, no, we go one day. We go Wednesday and Sunday and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, these guys must be bad down here. <laughs> they have to go to church so much. But it was, <laughs> you know, it was just something that was I was completely unaware of is the deep religio- religiosity that existed there. I know where it was the Bible Belt, but I didn't understand it how it permeated the entire society down here. And so um, you've heard probably some of my stories uh, of teaching down here, that subject. And, you know, I got in trouble early on um, with teaching it. And it, even at one school, I was actually even let go or not rehired, I should say. I was, I was brought into a, a, a very well-established, well-known, what we call over-the-mountain suburban school. And um, <laughs> I clashed with my teaching style. I mean, our department, when we had our first departmental meeting, I was hired with another guy. Um, we were sitting in there and they're going over the curriculum and they didn't even mention evolution. And then I said, well, when do you guys kind of teach evolution? They kind of looked at me and they never answered my question. And um, I looked at the other guy who was recently hired and we we're kind of like, what? <laughs> Because he was kind of the same ilk as I was, um, and uh, it was very interesting. And basically, I ended up uh, not getting hired back because I taught from an evolutionary viewpoint, and mm-hmm. uh, that was not accepted at that particular school. Um, so, anyways, I when I did my uh, um, my fifth year program here to get my teaching certificate, and this was you know again back before I even started teaching. One of my teachers who I've actually maintained a, a good relationship with was a guy named Dr. Lee Meadows. And um, he was a evangelical uh, science teacher who was also struggling um, with evolution at the time I first started taking those courses. But over time, he started to um, accept the idea of evolution and learned how to um, integrate it into his faith. And that took a long period. You know, it was a long evolutionary process for him, as it was for me to understand the fear that exists in many of these evangelicals who have been taught from day one that the E word is bad, it's evil, it'll bring you damnation. Um, and that was something I was a point of view that. I had no idea it existed until I really started talking with Lee a lot about this, Dr. Meadows. And um, he wrote a book. Uh, I can't think of the title of it right now, but Dr. just Google Dr. Lee Meadows on mm-hmm. Amazon. He'd come up with the title of his book. But um, he eventually also became part of a program uh, with the Smithsonian Institution called uh, Learning Unity and Diversity in Alabama, or LUDA for short. And he recruited 18 teachers. I, my, I and uh, Ryan Reardon were uh, two of the teachers recruited by this program. It was a, it's a four-year uh, research project. We're going into year four this year of how to teach evolution using um, different types of examples. The first year we taught was using human examples, and the second year was using animal examples. Um, I guess it's year three. Excuse me. We're going into year three now. And... Uh, this year will be kind of um, a sort of best of both worlds, so to speak. Um, but anyways, the one piece that I found most uh, useful to me in that particular 
um, program, this research program, Luda, was a thing called cultural and religious sensitivity. It's called CRS training. And basically, it's a way you start off your unit with this little CRS unit. It was a two to three day module, depending on how long your class periods were, where you basically tried to uh, let kids explore why or how do they know what they know? What are the different types of knowledge that they can have? And, you know, they talk, it talks a little bit about there's uh, knowledge that you get from your family. There's knowledge that you get from your faith and your church. And then there's this other thing that we call scientific knowledge and kind of doing a Venn diagram. Where do all these, how do all of these overlap and how does that help form your worldview? And the first year I did this LUTA program, I kind of looked at it and was like, oh, I don't know if I have the time to do that. It was kind of optional. And so I decided not to do it. And I had a lot of kickback um, from my students in that particular unit. It was one using human examples uh, that first year. And the second year, I decided to use the CRS stuff. And I tell you what, it made a huge difference because all of a sudden, part of that, um, one, of the, part of the, one of the lessons in that module is you're basically talking about the different types of approaches to knowledge and is it a, is it a uh, approach that's antagonistic to evolution is it one that works with evolution is it one that you know hey we can accept both of these side by side and and to go along with that they you're given a series of quotes um, from different people scientists religious people um, uh, people other people of faith and things and you're supposed to identify what type of approach is. Is, is it antagonistic? Is it um, sort of uh, work together? Or is it one that uh, says that, hey, we can accept both of these, no problem whatsoever. So the kids are reading these, and they, it's, it's not showing where the quote comes from. And then all of a sudden, you show it, you flash up where the origin of a quote is. And, you know, it's like Francis Collins talking about his uh is intersection between faith and, and science, or maybe it's uh, something from one of the Episcopal churches. There was a letter, I think, from an Episcopal church saying how evolution is fine. And then there was other ones like from the Southern Baptist Conference, Conference versus <laughs> basically antagonistic and things of that nature. And I remember um, after that particular unit, we did like a little uh, um, you know feedback uh, session and the kids were like, wow. I didn't realize that you could, you know, accept Christianity and, and Jesus and, and still believe in evolution. And it's okay because they never heard it before, mm. you know. And um, so when I did that, um, uh, that workshop, I stressed to my attendees that you really ought to look into this piece here. And because many of the teachers down here in Alabama, they won't teach evolution. A, it's because A, they don't understand it or they're against it um, or um, their community is against it. So it's, it's, it's hard. But I think bringing this, this CRS unit in, and this is available online, you can, all, the, all your listeners can go to the Smithsonian Education. I think I put a link up there um, mm-hmm. uh, on, on the uh, notes page, uh, and they can look at that material and say, hey, is this something that I can use? And it's all downloadable. It's all free. And there's a couple other great examples. There's one on human skin. There's one on skin color variation. There's one on adaptations to high altitude. And these are all fully um, 
uh, vetted units that have gone through research protocols. They, are, they have lesson plans. They have approaches. There's uh, downloadable student notes. And th- there's a lot of stuff out there, and it's all free. And um, I've used the skin color one before, and I think this year I'm going to let my students decide whether or not they want to do skin color or adaptation to altitude as kind of a, a focal point for learning evolution this year. I'm going to let them have a choice. And, you know, as being in the South in Alabama, the skin color one is actually pretty pertinent because uh, we're, you know, just as every place in this country is still dealing with racism. Um, I think we actually do a better job of it in the South than, than, <laughs> than there is up North. And up North, it's, everything's so hidden up there, whereas down here, at least it's out in the open. <laughs> yeah. And we can well, deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I the being in the north, you just you just get uh you know geographic uh segregation by you know economics, historical oh, economic know. segregation that we've had, you know I I think that would be one of the biggest things. And having, you know, been in the south, you know, in my youth, there definitely I think is less of that. Yeah, people uh, all work together. I mean, yeah. it's all very integrated. And when, like I said, when I go up and visit up north, I'm always like, huh. <laughs> yeah it's very but, different <laughs> yeah and it very much depends on what community you're in um exactly. and if you're but if you're outside of a lot of the cities it's you know it's um it's not very diverse although i will say this the from a uh, a a economic standpoint what you're seeing is that you're seeing more diversity um in different communities uh, that are grappling with it for the first time. I think that's where you get a lot of the, the race issues that have been popped, yeah. popped up. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's not an open conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's, it's been interesting. It, as you were talking, it reminded me of some of the BSCS stuff that I, I talked to Paul and Katie about, and I know they're still working on that. I could see how it could go uh, hand in hand with some of the, the race, the, the race research that they've been doing out yes. in Colorado with BSES as they, as they move forward um, with that. I think it's very interesting. It's, it's a very constructivist way of approaching evolution, um, mm-hmm. but acknowledging sort of the cultural differences and the cultural baggage that we all bring in yes. um, as opposed to, you know, I think, you know, where I teach <laughs> the, the approach to, you know, I, I, and I've heard people say things like, well, I would just teach evolution, um, you know, from a, a point of privilege, you know, if you grew up in the North and you never had to encounter any objections to evolution um, and you have very little empathy for why somebody might object to the teaching of evolution, then sure, you can approach it from an antagonistic standpoint, the way you described it. But that's not a very responsible way of uh getting students to grapple with things no and, not at all because they shut down yeah I mean, and your goal sh- is intellectual curiosity not yeah, to have yeah. them shut down and so. which is an issue that i grapple with even at the school on that because i am known as that guy that teaches evolution <laughs> is very into it and stuff like that and um you know you know, as a, as a seven a school with sixteen hundred students, I should have more AP Bio kids than I do have. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen a I don't know if you've had, but we've seen a, a big drop in both AP Bio, AP Chem, and more of an increase in the AP Physics. Uh, that has you know it kind of fluctuates year to year. You know, like yeah. maybe maybe next year I'll have a whole bunch more kids. This year I'm really I'm really low. I only have eighteen students for AP Bio one section. Yeah. I think um, it's an, I think it ebbs and flows in communities. Cause we have this year, I have 125 kids in AP bio. It's the most we have ever had before, woo. but we were down to 
a couple of years ago, we were at 72 and we're a community where we're pretty much consistently around 90. Yeah. Um, so when we were, you know, we had two, three years in a row where we were, you know, under 80 and I was like, oh, we're really struggling. You know, yeah. um, we're, our numbers are dropping. We had dropped down to three sections for a couple of years where we usually consistently were four. Now we're five. So yeah. we're, we're, I think, I think there's a natural ebb and flow that happens within, you know, the communities. And yeah, what we, we saw, we saw the one year, our AP Enviro numbers went way up. You know, the guy who was teaching AP Enviro was teaching like four sections of AP Enviro. Now AP Enviro is back to like either two or three sections. And our AP Physics is, I think, where it's been. But AB Chem was big last year and it's a little smaller this year. I think it's just a natural ebb and flow. Yeah. And what's, what's kind of funny, we had the same issue with the AP Environmental is that um, when she had, she had like five or six sections. I think she had five sections of AP Environmental and one of General Environmental. And this year she only has two, but she was like, I can't do anything when she has that many sections. And just like with me, if I'm trying to run, uh, if I ran more than like four sections of AP, but I don't know how I would do it, you know, in terms <laughs> of labs and the equipment and, yeah. you know, just storing stuff and kids experiments, where would it go? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I definitely, you know, we have a, we have a rotating drop schedule, which kind of actually saved us a little bit. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, if we did, if we had our old schedule and we had gone through, I don't know how I would have run all my gels and all my, um, like, I, I don't know how I would have made all of the gels that I needed yeah. to run gels and do PCR and stuff like that. But fortunately, be, like, it's sort of a nice side note of our rotating drop block, which is very different and takes a lot of coordination. Um, it actually freed up our thermocyclers. Yeah. <laughs> so that, but, but we ran, we ran our mini PCRs. We got more mini PCRs on their way via a grant coming in January, but they aren't yeah. in yet. But I, I ran the heck out of our couple little mini PCRs. Last yeah. Month. yeah. <laughs> I just, I just got two of those for this year. And last year I borrowed the ones from the, uh, bio, what do they call that thing? The bio, I don't know, one of those academies we have, Biomedicine Academy or something. Or, um, but I borrowed theirs, and this year I ordered some of the mi the mini ones, not the not the mini PCR, but the mini ones. And um, I'm really looking forward. To, like you know, like I said, I told you earlier on that you know this was sort of my weak area when I first started teaching, and it has been a weak area for me probably up until like the last I would say six or seven years where I started. You know, I just finally said, you know what, I gotta, I gotta start doing this. I gotta learn this stuff, and um, that has been a real uh, enjoyment for myself. And again, you know, if we don't, uh, if, uh, you know, we just have to keep on learning as teachers, um, and that's what's that's what makes it fun. And I tell my students right up front, I'm like, hey, you're the first guys I've ever done this lab with, or whatever, you know. And um, like, we'll be this will be their fourth year doing the uh, Taste of Genetics lab. I don't know if you've done yep. that one. We, ju we just finished it, yeah. Yeah, it's a fun lab. So yeah. I'll be just—I'll just be going into that stuff uh, after break. Here we'll be doing all our um, biotech stuff. So I got several labs we're going to be doing, and I got—I uh, think I got uh, eight or nine of the electrophoresis chambers, and I got two of the mini one PCR units. So we're going to have some fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. All right. Well, we you're sort of talking about things you're looking for this year, but what are in general are you looking forward to in the upcoming years in your classroom? Like what are the what are the things that you're really looking at like learning and getting better at in these next couple of years or maybe implementing? Um wow. You know, it's it's changing so quick, Aaron. Um <laughs> what I what I we just we almost are finished with an outdoor classroom that's um, built right on the river behind our school. And our river is called the Cahaba River, and it's the most biologically diverse river in the Northern Hemisphere. 
in terms of uh, native fish species and mussel species and clam species. I've got 145 different species of fish in a river and things of that nature. Wow. And um, I'm really looking forward to turning my classroom into more of a kind of like a, a field school, so to speak. I really want to get my kids outside because if one thing I look at, they're, they're, they're afraid to go outside. Mm-hmm. You know, at first, you know, they're afraid to go out because even though we live in a, and I teach in a suburban slash rural school, um, most of my kids don't go outside. I've, yeah, sure. I have a, uh, several of my boys and a few of my girls like to go out and uh, deer hunt and they like to go fishing, but the majority of kids don't do anything outside and they start freaking out when they go out. <laughs> and my goal, and that's what got me into, into biology. I, I grew up in a rural, upstate rural New York after, after my dad left New York City in the early 70s. And I entertained myself by going outside and you know, learning how to hunt, learning how to trap, learning how to fish and do all these things. Um, but kids today, again, they get just wrapped up in you know, video games and things of that nature and air conditioning climates and things of that nature. But <laughs> when I went to high school... I had one teacher named Jack Shea, who later became the director of the Teton Science School, but he had just gotten off the North Slope of Alaska where he was doing uh, research on um, caribou. And he would tell these great stories and uh, got me so, this was, I was, I was at a, a small private school in, in the Berkshires called Ber- the Berkshire School. And uh, um, he just got us so excited about, you know, outside and he, t- he would take us out. We'd go on hikes all the time. He ran this outdoor club. And I'm really, and that's what, that's what gave me my love for biology was that class right there. And I credit Jack Shea for doing that. And um, early on in my teaching career, when I was teaching at the Altamont School, I did a lot of that with my students. Also, uh, we had a great um, outside area and a lot of my students went into it. Over the last couple of years, and, and you know, when I first, I, I left the Altamont School in order to go overseas with my wife uh, to go work in West Africa. That didn't come, that didn't pan out. And so we ended up uh, moving to San Francisco, tried to stay there for a year, tried to teach, couldn't get that to work out either. So I came back to Alabama. And when I came back to Alabama, that's when I started teaching in public schools. And the environment was so different that I didn't really have the time to take my students out as much as I did when I taught at this small private school. And so I sort of got out of that habit of going out, doing what I used to think my kids affectionately at Altamont called Mr. K's Nature Hikes. And... Um, <laughs> I want to get back into that. I started doing it last year. I do take my kids outside. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I, I never take them out. We go out quite a bit, but it's not become a center of education. I want to make it the center of education um, because it's natural history is something that is so important. If we don't love it, they won't, they won't learn to, that they have to protect it. And I think we are rapidly devolving into a society that is going to be nature poor. Mm. You know, just look at all of, you know, you know, the, the stats for endangered species and, you know, the idea that, you know, we're going to lose orangutans and may, may, maybe most major ape populations within the next 10 to 20 years. You know, it's just sad. And, um, you know, I got to get my kids out more. I got to get them to appreciate what is surrounding them because every generation there's less surrounding them. Mm. You know, and they don't see that loss. And um, 
one of the things I have my students do at the beginning of um, my ecology unit is I pull up some old readings uh, from the American naturalists from like the 1860s, 1870s. Um, uh, you can go to Library of Congress and get them describing places like San Francisco Bay. Mm. You know, what it was like for those first people to walk in where salmon were so thick they could walk across the river and the ducks and the geese <laughs> filling the bay were black in the skies. And for myself, like you know, I've, I've worked in Alaska, I've worked in New Guinea, I've worked in Africa, I've worked in um, uh, many places in the, in the American West and stuff. And I've seen some of these sites. I remember one time up, um, it was up in Glacier Bay, Alaska, no, excuse me, it was on the Yukon Cusquim Delta up in Western Alaska, just above the Northern, just above the Aleutian chain. And I was laying down in this hummocky area right above this bay where the world's entire population of black brant, which is a type of goose, were hanging out. And the plane that was coming in to pick me up came, you know, it was, you know, it was several miles away, but it swooped wide over this bay. And all of a sudden, all the geese and ducks on that bay, probably numbering somewhere in, you know, I would say several million birds, all of a sudden flew and they just flew right over my head. And it was just like literally it blackened the sky. And to think that those sites are not going to be seen. You know, if our kids, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah. It's, uh, to me, that's my church. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and to see that loss. And to have witnessed that in, in my lifetime, it's hard. Yeah, well, hopefully the, I mean, the, the, the climate strikes and the kids that are really leading the environmental movement, hopefully there is some, there is some ownership by oh, the, I think, kid, yeah. the kids in the schools that are, uh, you know, it's hard to be optimistic sometimes, but oh my god, yeah. Th- you know, but and, these kids are these kids are a reason to be optimistic. It is, and you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, how you've had to defend this generation and things against, you know, people my age, basically. <laughs> you know, the boomers are saying, "Oh, these kids are worthless; they're not just millennial, blah blah blah." And I look at them and I say, "I see the best of humanity," you know, in my students. Yeah. You know, they're, I look at I look at my own kids. They have work ethics that I never had. You know, I couldn't do what they're doing. I couldn't be. I'm you know I'm easily distracted. I think I you know probably I was diagnosed with you know ADD not too long ago. And um, you know the fact that they can deal with what they're dealing with in terms of the amount of information that's coming in and still manage to do well and do all these other things just blows me away. Yeah. You know, and I tell my kids that, and I think they're not used to hearing that. <laughs> and um, I think it's something that we all as teachers, especially us older guys and gals, you know, really need to reemphasize is, you know, it's a difficult world and it's amazing. I think it's so amazing what my kids, you know, what my kids and my students are all doing. So. Yeah. I said that I actually had a moment earlier this month uh, or back in, I don't know, maybe even November, where I said to my kids, I was like, oh, I'd rather spend my day with you guys. 
any day of the week than with a group of adults. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and they were like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> they no, were kind I'm... of actually, they kind of went like, oh. And I was like, oh, I mean that. I really, really mean that. You no, guys... no. We, we have this little, every month we have like some sort of character education that we're supposed to be doing at our school. Um, yeah. Be, uh, and like, I think last month it was joy, which you know, kind of fits with the season and things like that. And one of the things in our home, what we're supposed to do is, Hey, what brings you joy? And I'll just write everything up on the, on the boards. And I kind of kicked it off and my students will are like, well, what brings you joy, Mr. K? And I turned around and I said, you know, teaching you guys yeah. because I, you know, I really appreciate the fresh perspective you bring, the stupid things, silly things you say. That's what <laughs> entertains me, keeps me going. And I said, you know, if I had to sit all day in a faculty meeting or with other adults, would I would drive me crazy, you know? <laughs> so, so the exact same sentiment. I think that's what you know why we're still in it after twenty some odd years is because we do enjoy it. Absolutely. And, and uh, my wife's always complaining that I, you know, why don't you go into administration, make more money? And I'm like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> there are other things I can think I can, I think I could do. <laughs> that is not one of them. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get to questions from me and picks the episode, uh, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? And I think I know the answer to this, but yeah, yeah. Well, you, you do know the answer to this, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm in addition to being a teacher, I'm also a mountain bike coach, mm-hmm. and so I coach, I help coach. I said, there's like we have 75 kids on our team this year. Wow. You know, we started with 14 in uh, five years ago. We're up to 75 right now. And these sports just blowing up. And um, so I'm one of about uh, five or six coaches, but one of two of the coaches who actually teach at the school. And so I love, you know, of course, coaches is kind of loosely applied because we don't get any stipend at all. Matter of fact, (laughs) I probably spend about two grand of my own money in order to coach a high school sport. But I just love being with the kids. I love being outside with them. And it's funny because the kids who are my biology students who are, in, who are also mountain bikers, I'll sit there and I'll quiz them while we're riding. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, always t- I'm always pointing stuff out, you know, because we, we're ri- always outside. So I'm looking, especially when there's phenology patterns happening in the early spring, we can start getting the bud burst and all that kind of stuff oh, yeah. and identifying trees for the kids. And they're, so it's fun. It's, I really enjoy that. But yes, uh, Biking is one of my is one of my hobbies that I love to do, and I love to bring my bike to the uh, AP Reed in Kansas City. So, any of you out there who might be listening, bring a bike to Kansas City. It's a great place to ride. Um, yeah, you guys are so. the crazy ones. You go out and ride after the day of reading, and, and I, before. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes before. Like, because I, I get out and run in the morning when it's yeah. not like super hot. Um, Although the last year wasn't super hot, but two yeah, years ago, nice. oh, two yeah, years ago, two years ago, it was like walking on the sun when we were there. And it was, I would get up and I would start running and I was running at like, you know, six in the morning and yeah. it was, it was already like upper seventies and humid. Yeah. 90, hundred percent humidity. <laughs> yeah. And like, I get back, I'd get back to, and I'd be like drenched from a 6am run, you know, like a sunrise run on um, that day. And I would be like, like totally melted from those runs that last year was was perfectly pleasant it was like 50s or 60s people were complaining that it was too cold that was actually yeah. funny last year yeah. um but yeah I, I don't know how you guys you went out and rode some of the afternoons uh, after the read in those 90 degree days i don't know how you guys did that yeah it was fun <laughs> i mean it's a great time and uh like i said kansas city's fun and 
It's a good way to work off all those calories you get while eating that <laughs> delicious food. <laughs> I believe industrially prepared is the better way of describing it. Um, the pig troughs <laughs> of the AP read. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I drink more, I drink more sodas that week than I drink for the rest of the year. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I could run. I, you know, I'm always amazed looking at your Strava, you know, how many miles you put in and stuff like that. Yeah. But I just, my body's just not meant to run. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually fighting it. I'm fighting a little injury right now. So oh, no. I, I definitely, my, I've been taking more days off in December and I got a little, yeah, I think I actually figured out that it's actually a little bit of a quad injury, but it's been manifesting in some knee pain. So I've yeah. been doing a lot of little stretching and stuff like that. I went out the other day and went on a run and I just, I never really warmed up. Like I was, I ran like every mile, like it was my first mile warm up, and just, I, you know, never really, I finally got warm as I was climbing the two mile hill back up to my house, which is like a slog. Um, yeah. My pace didn't drop off, but I did not run, <laughs> did not run yeah. fast. And um, yeah, there's, I definitely have some to invest in some cross training and some stretching in the next couple of weeks. So. Yeah, I've been helping. I've been working out with my daughter uh, recently, and that's kind of helping a little bit. She's, of course, she's kicking my butt. <laughs> Strong as all get out. Yeah, young, the young ones will do that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So before we get to our picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I was wondering. Uh, you have a, you know, a kind of a unique um, vantage point, if, uh, if you will, on you know pedagogy and what other people are doing and in classrooms from all your what this is episode 87 now yeah um so what do you take home from it yeah i mean a few different things um i I just had my one-on-one with my principal the other day and this year's been really hard for us we've been we've had a really hard like i think few years we had a lot of change and a lot of turnover in our district and it's a high pressure school to work in and um i've noticed that a lot of the my colleagues around me are like they're just struggling. Like they're, you know, they're having a hard time because they care so much and they're working so hard, but there's been so much change and people are not comfortable with change. And, um, I have found that having a network and having like a support system Mm -hmm. for what we do is Mm -hmm. so important. And one particularly that is like, um, that helps you sort of reflect and not feel judged is really important. And I don't know that I have that baked into the school that I teach in. Um, I have like some wonderful colleagues that I work with and, and I have good relationships with them. But I, I think that on the whole, if you were to sum up all the conversations that happen in the building, they're not professional conversations about teaching and learning. They're no. logistical conversations about scheduling and like assemblies and like it's all like the minutia of running a building and how to navigate a schedule. And it's not about the deep conversations of teaching and learning. And so for me, I think really important for all teachers is to have a network of people, whether it's a Facebook community or a random group text or friends who teach in other buildings that you run with or bike with or whatever, that you can have teaching and learning sort of philosophical deep dives with is super important. Oh yeah. Otherwise you're going to get into this like like your professional dialogues are all like those soul-sucking logistics conversations and never about the teaching and learning yes so 
yeah, I, I have a total, I, I realize that because of the nature of this job that I have created for myself, as you said, you know, my hobby that costs me, you know, several hundred dollars a year. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's been great because it, as I watch people around me struggle and not, and not, and feel ground down, like get to breaks and be like, oh, I need two weeks off. Oh, thank God we got to the last day of break. I never feel like, oh, thank God it's the last day of school. Oh, yeah, thank God yeah, we have two yeah. weeks off. I, I don't feel that way. I yeah. feel like what we're doing is so important, but I also realize it's because I'm sustaining like professional conversations about teaching and learning on a regular basis. And that drives what I do. And that's super important. And I don't think that that's something that's, as I said, baked into everybody's professional experience, but no. it's so important that we need to keep doing that. And so, I don't know, I'm thinking about ways to try to help other people have that conversation. I hope that people who listen to these episodes get that, they get to hear the conversations that aren't about, you know, logistics, but instead are about these other broader things. Yes. I know that's, I remember my first 13 years of teaching when I taught at the Altamont school. And that's, that was one of the drawbacks I thought about teaching in a private school was that, um, A, you're, you're teaching in a school of choice. And a lot of times the students are going to do well, no matter what. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could basically throw them a textbook and, you know, say, Hey, get through this chapter 54 and they're going to pass the AP exam. They'll do it. Um, but because of that, all the teachers think they're doing really good, really well. <laughs> You know, and so there's no need to seek out extra help and there's no encouragement to do that. We, you know, we had PD in this private school I was at, but it wasn't encouraged to go look really outside for other resources besides what the school was offering. And it wasn't until I actually entered public education, um, well, slightly before I was still at the last couple of years at Altamont that I got introduced to A plus college ready. And that's where I met Ryan Reardon is about 2008, I think. And that's what sort of started kicking me off and start realizing, hey, there's this whole other community out there that are doing all these cool things. And I'm just barely, I'm not even doing half of that stuff. I need to improve myself. And if you don't make that realization and realize that there's this huge learning community out there. And I think it's, it's nowadays, it's probably that doesn't happen because everybody's so interconnected with everything. And I'm sure the teaching colleges and stuff are, are you know, emphasizing that. But back then, oh my God, no well, idea about it. Yeah, I will tell you, I when I look at the teachers around me in my building, they are not heavily connected into like social networks of other teachers. They are, you know, there's a mix. You know, you've got people who are like me and there's a couple of other colleagues who are part of professional organizations and stuff like that. But I would say there are more teachers who don't use the networks to build themselves up socially or only do them socially and they don't do them professionally. What, like, what, but what's their age range? They, everything from thirties to, you know, near uh, retirement, huh. you know, cause I would but, say that in my school, I would see that more around people my age and probably from the late thirties on up. But some of the younger people I'm seeing moving in as I love going to NABT this year and seeing so many young people there. Yeah. Uh, I think they're just more connected. Yeah. I also don't see many of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought there was a lot more at this NABT than I've yeah. ever seen before. Yeah. At the NABT. Yes. But I'm saying like within my building and within, oh, yeah, yeah. like, I, I just don't encounter a lot of young teachers. Like that's, no, no. It, there's just not a ton of them. So um. well, the incentive is not there. You know? yeah, so, unfortunately, uh, most teachers, when they start off, they get stuck in some 
really hard to teach school. I was, I feel like I was lucky, even though I didn't have any teaching background, I was put into a school, like I said, a school of choice where the kids were easy. I didn't have discipline problems. I had a very good backup from my administration and things, but I can't imagine being young and all of a sudden <laughs> talking to a tough, tough, tough school district, you know, with limited access to resources and say, Hey, go at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've gotten to picks of the episode. Kurt, what is your pick? Um, well, I really, I, I, the, the one, well, the one site that I will put up there has to deal with all the evolution stuff is the Smithsonian origins site. And there's, a um, another, uh, so that's one it's called teaching evolution through human examples from the, mm-hmm. at the Smithsonian. And, uh, it's, um, humanorigins.si.edu and uh, great background information. Um, again, they have like five different units. There's one on malaria. There's one on uh, skin color. There's one on high altitude adaptations. There's another one on what it means to be human. And there's the cultural and religious sensitivity. That program was originally developed for AP biology. And um, we are currently pilot testing another version of that for ninth grade biology and middle school. And I think that's a great place for um, teachers to go if they're struggling um, with teaching evolution in their in whatever particular situation they are in, or they just want some more background information on the subject itself. There's a lot of great resources in there. And again, it's all free. It's all downloadable. Oh, that's um, cool. So it's a great place to go. Um, and then I think I mentioned earlier, I'm just really concerned with, uh, you know, as many of us are, with the way science is being treated in the in the news and with, you know, more particularly with the current administration. And I'm that's kind of really sucked a lot of time for me reading about all these different stories where, you know, science is getting suppressed, funding is being re- taken away. Hmm. And I think we as teachers, and I don't know how to go to, I don't have any particular resource or site. You know, I use a lot of different news sites that I read stories from, but we as teachers really have to do a good job of emphasizing what is science, what is not science, and why is it so important. And, uh, you know, I, I think we just, as teachers, need to keep abreast of what is going on not only in the science world, but also in the political world that is affecting um, both the teaching of science and the doing of science. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've i been reading a lot. I think there's been, there's sort of a duality right now. There's a, a definitely reasons to feel uh, down about things. I also have read a lot of <laughs> reasons to try to feel optimistic as we yeah. head into a new year. So yes, I'm, yeah. I'm that's my nature is to sort of be the optimist. <laughs> that's that's generally my nature too. Um, uh, you know, it is, however, when I start seeing just the, you know, the destruction that's going on, it just uh, every once in a while, it overwhelms me. I can understand. Um, yeah. Having spent so much time as a biologist, you know, living in these very remote regions and being so immersed in nature and then just seeing people that just don't give a crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially when you've had those experiences. Yeah. All right. Well, my pick is also evolution themed. Um, I was looking back as we, as I said, we're recording this in the, the last few days of 2019, getting ready for 2020. Um, and I had been looking back at some, you know, what are some maybe stories that 
were you know great breakthroughs and that sort of thing. And uh, one of the things I had I'd come across was this this article um, in Quantum Magazine about uh, the cell bacterial merger that gives clues onto how organelles first evolved. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing about this article, and I've also put a link to the original uh, paper in Cell, which is actually open access and a really great primary source literature. Um, I don't know if you how much you know about Cell, but Cell I, has been doing like a really nice job uh, with like trying to break down and communicate their articles in ways that make them a little bit more accessible. I don't know that they're for the general public, but for me, I find their summaries, you know, having a dangerous amount of biology knowledge in a lot of things. They have a, um, uh, a summary. They have basically a, they start with highlights, which is a couple of key bulleted points. Like these are the big things that we got out of it. Then there's a summary Then there's a graphical abstract, which is in pictures showing the different things in context. Oh, wow. Um, Then they get into the paper's introduction. So like not only do they have sort of your classic abstract, which they call a summary, they actually have a graphical abstract that gives you a visual of it. And some of the visuals in this paper are phenomenal in here. But just to sort of go back to the Quanta Magazine article, um, this one's called, I guess, and cell bacteria mergers offers clues to how organelles evolved. And the idea is that cells in symbiotic partnerships nested one within the other functioning like organelles and they can borrow from their host genes to complete their own metabolic pathway and specifically they look at a peptidoglycan pathway Mm-hmm. that is shared amongst the different levels of these. I think somewhere in the paper, they refer to them as rushing nesting dolls, that you have the larger cell that has a bacteria in it that has a bacteria in it. And this, the gene transfer that occurs between these organisms may in fact be how the first organelles came into being wow. through these communication. And again, if you go to the cell paper, there's some really nice pictures of the horizontal gene transfer of the peptidoglycan related genes um, from one cell to another cell. And then they show how it all sort of comes together to show a cell within a cell within a cell um, and how that all works. So wow. uh, kind of a cool evolutionary paper, you know, a, a, a a complex version of symbiosis made me think a lot about endosymbiotic theory, made me think a lot about things like Wolbachia and other examples of endosymbiosis. But this is like in the news like two months ago. (laughs) This is a journal article published in October of 2019. So, you know, people are still sorting out these fundamental stories about how living things come together. And that to me is always one of the coolest things about biology. That's, that's what I love about this field. It's, it's changing all the time. You know, you teach chemistry, you teach physics, and there's not (laughs) really that much changing. (laughs) It's like a hundred year old, the stuff you're teaching, you know, but our stuff is just changing every day. And that's one of the ways early we mentioned how do i make my stuff relevant you know i'm listening to podcasts i'm listening to npr every day i'm going through the science times on every tuesday in new york times and things like that and bringing that information back into my classroom and making the kids realize is that we don't know half the stuff it's just, it's all coming out now and <laughs> you know, and how they need to become involved in reading about this and uh, you know anything we can do to bring the excitement that is that you and I feel when we read about this stuff to our students. 
<laughs> Let me give, quickly give my credits. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Those numbers help me out. I get to I love to see the dozens of people who download my episodes every every month. Uh, you can support what I do uh, by going to patreon.com slash lots. Patreon's got an early release of my episodes. I usually put them out uh, three or four days before the actual release. I will also post show notes up there um, when I do my Sunday release. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. Uh, you could also get show notes at Life of the school.org you can follow me on twitter at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school uh kurt had a twitter but the last time i think he posted on it was in 2014 so i don't <laughs> think that's relevant but well kurt thank you so much for joining me um i really appreciate it and um yeah i look forward to talking to you again uh, soon You're making me edit you out. <laughs> I don't have an explicit on there. You now become only the second person I have had to edit for content. And that is, and the other one is also from Alabama.